legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Mitch Horowitz, who joins us for a conversation inspired by his latest book, Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences. Our contemporary culture is dominated by materialism, the materialism of conspicuous consumption, endless infotainment and social media addiction, and the materialism which tells us that the entire universe and life itself are random accidents utterly devoid of meaning or purpose. But modern materialism, however you look at it, is falling apart. The latest developments in quantum physics and psychical research have already fatally undermined materialism's self-declared monopoly on truth, often by using the very scientific methods once used to debunk them. But unlike celebrity gossip or political fear-mongering, news of paradigm shifts in our understanding of reality spreads slowly. This will change. Cutting-edge consciousness research strongly suggests that mind, not matter, is the ground of reality. On both an individual and collective level, the implications of this are vast. If the cascading crises currently plaguing our planet are simply reflections of false beliefs about ourselves, each other, and reality as a whole, then we have the power, each of us starting with ourselves, right now, to change everything. Hello and welcome Mitch and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Good to be here, man. Good to hear your voice. Thank you. Thank you, Mitch, and yours. Now, we're here today on the um, occasion of your uh, recently published or just about to be published new book. It's a collection of essays. Some of them uh, previously appeared in print and online. There are some transcriptions of talks. Uh, There's an interview you did with David Lynch, for example, the the filmmaker. Uh, The book's entitled Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and outsider experiences. Before we get started, just for listeners who don't know, just give me a little potted bio of yourself. Sure. I'm an alt- I'm a historian of alternative spirituality. I write about metaphysics in history and practice. I define myself as a believing historian. I participate in many of the movements I write about. So I write from both a historical and practical perspective. And the book charts my journey in a certain sense, probably over the last 20 years or so. Excellent. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, this is a collection of essays and other uh, bits and pieces, but there is a, there are red threads, shall we say, common themes running throughout. And uh, off air, I mentioned some of the, you know, the, the sort of headline questions that they are addressing coming from different angles, and they are, what is ethical power? Is extra physicality real? That's to say, you know, non-physical forces. And can spiritual forces be harnessed? So that's kind of, if we have a theme, then those kind of sum it up. I'm going to start by talking about a situation where we currently find ourselves um, as a species, and it's a, it's a topic that comes up, a situation that comes up again and again 
in interviews that I do on many different subjects, but if we're touching at all upon the human condition and our present situation in the early 21st century, then this always raises its head. And that is to say that materialism in both senses of the word um, really dominate our culture at the minute. When I say both senses, I mean materialism as in a way of life, you know, acquisitive, chasing after stuff in pursuit of contentment, happiness, who knows what. And I know you're absolutely, and your philosophy is not against having nice things, not, not a problem. However, it is in, in a vacuum, that can become a problem. The other sense of the word materialism is it, as a sort of cosmology, that yes. matter somehow creates itself and only matter matters. And we're in a, a sort of hardcore materialist, fundamentalist almost materialist, materialist society, certainly in the West and other cultures that run along similar lines. And really, I mention this because what comes down to whether the problems and issues that we face going forward are personal, whether they're societal, global, whatever it happens to be, uh, materialism has a, it kind of has a lot to answer for, I think. And I think I see potential for change. I think, and this has been said so many times and not really come to fruition, but it feels like we're kind of moving into a situation now where something's got to change on that front. And it is in certain corners of culture. Yes. And uh, in effect, that's really why I called the book Uncertain Places. I, I think that our culture, and I would not have said this five years ago, and I, I don't say it in a glib way now, I think we're really going through some kind of a, a dramatic shift in perspective, probably due to the mainstreaming of the UFO thesis, uh, which in many respects got our way in 2017 with reportage in the New York Times by Helene Cooper, Ralph Blumenthal, Leslie Keen about Navy cockpit videos of UFOs and other revelations of government programs and records here in the United States that uh, pertain to the UFO thesis. And with that door cracked open, uh, a, a lot more is, is, is entering uh, through the opening. I think there is probably a renewed interest in academic ESP research, psychical research. Uh, there are bountiful theories about what's behind the UFO phenomena. I mean, obviously, some of these things uh, are, are materialist in nature, such as the question of unknown technology and such. But if that doesn't cover all the bases, and I don't think it does, it brings us not only to questions of an ET presence, but perhaps questions of interdimensionality uh, as a as a, a primary cause of some of this phenomena. We have better models, in fact, of interdimensionality right now as a human community than we do of what it would take to travel the unfathomable distances that would support the ET thesis. And some of these discussions are converging with ideas that have emerged from the last 80 or 90 years or so of uh, experiments in quantum mechanics where matter behaves in ways that matter is not supposed to behave in, not permitted to behave in within a Newtonian world model. And this also feeds into the extra dimensional thesis, uh, dramatic and really unusual new studies into the placebo response, um, the field of neuroplasticity, demonstrating the manner in which our thoughts, whatever thought actually is, uh, alters the cellular makeup of our brains, specifically altering the neural pathways through which electrical impulses travel in the brain. One of the field's founders, a psychiatrist named Jeffrey Schwartz at UCLA, 
very unabashedly refers to it as mind over matter. And this brings us to an uncertain place because materialism as a dominant philosophy of life no longer covers all the bases of observation and including replicable observation that comes out of the classical hard sciences. So we're going to see, I think, uh, uh, materialism remain dominant, certainly for our generation, but uh, the news travels slowly and materialism is going to remain a dominant philosophy in academia, in many stretches of mainstream media. Again, as you reference this idea that matter creates itself, everything is the result of some definable uh, chemical or, or cognitive or biologic process that we know that is familiar to us. Everything fits within a standard box, more or less, of Newtonian physics as far as our worldly existence is concerned. And that doesn't hold water anymore. That simply doesn't hold water anymore. It, 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 it violates common observation and materialism at a certain point was erected as a kind of gatekeeping philosophy to affirm the validity of common observation. But it's failing on that count and it will remain dominant. But I think we're probably seeing the last generation of dominance. And what comes next? What replaces it? What is the post-materialist outlook uh, resemble and that's a question that 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 we're standing naked in front of right now. But one thing is for certain, which is um, materialism as a primary organizing philosophy, as a kind of umbrella philosophy of life, it no longer works. Well, you talked about maybe not covering all the bases, but I think that's about as good a summary, really, of these threads coming together as we could have uh, wished for. So, thank you for that. I remember reading Francis Crick's, well, he co-authored the book, I can't remember who with, but uh, Francis Crick, the discoverer or co-discoverer of the, you know, the, the DNA helix shape mm-hmm. and his book, Life Itself, which purports to, you know, you pick up this book and you say, oh, wow, you know, origins of life, but ends up basically just batting it off because his theory of panspermia, um, ultimately you get to the end of the book and there's it ends with kind of a speculation that that life on earth could have been seeded from elsewhere in mm-hmm. the solar system or the galaxy. And that's just, that's just maybe a kick in the can down the road, isn't it really? Uh, <laughs> so well, this- it's funny, uh, I, I, you know, the, 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 the founders themselves of uh, quantum mechanics, for example, going back uh, over a century themselves were not materialists. They believed in a perceptual basis of reality and this is world-class science. And you find the same thing coming out of, Crick, who is probably to uh, DNA studies, what Einstein is to physics, and it's it's this idea that our our current reference points are are just insufficient, and uh, it's it's quite a remarkable thing. And I I do think that this has made inroads in, into the popular mind. This has made inroads into the popular consciousness. Um, these things can take a while, but I would warrant that most people walking around in the Western world today, although they might have differences in vocabulary terms and such, would probably agree with most of what we're saying. Most people will talk about experiences, deeply intimate experiences that they've had in life that suggest to them something that goes beyond physical cognition. And of course, the rejectionists will say, oh, you know, confirmation bias and so forth, which is just a social sciences term for prejudice. Uh, without ever applying that same term back to their own outlook. And uh, and the fact is, these um, 
I don't think that because the point of view is popular m- means that it's true, certainly. Uh, popularity is not a measure of truth, but it is worth noting that I think people of all different backgrounds, um, educational status, income strata, you know, throughout the Western world have probably in private uh, moved away from a materialist view. I don't know if I mentioned this in our first interview from several years ago, talking about um, your book, The Miracle Club, and you thought, yeah, we'll get to all that in due course. But in high school during the 1980s in physics class, I can't remember, obviously it's a long time ago, I can't remember if Einstein was mentioned. It'd be amazing if he wasn't. However, there was no module on quantum physics at mm-hmm. all. And that was in a total of uh, five years of physics class. No mention whatsoever. And to me, I l- reflected back on that later. And I thought that was astounding because not just in the 1980s, but there had been so much already been published about uh, you know the the what quantum physics was kind of suggesting or revealing, and to not you know school uh, teenagers in it, it seemed absolutely bizarre. It was like the cutting edge. It still yes. is really you know, and so that that was really really odd. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. The it's funny also we we find ourselves in a situation with quantum physics, with neuroplasticity, uh, with the placebo response, which has taken leaps uh, 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 forward in terms of our experiments and our data over, say, the past 25 years. Uh, No one really disputes the key findings. It's the implications of the findings that are subject to so much debate. We have all these findings that don't behave themselves, and yet no one, uh, it's difficult for Western civilization to probe the implications of the findings because they go to the very uh, foundations of, and they crack away at the foundations of materialism, as as we've been describing it. And it's super interesting, you know, the uh, data that's come out of neuroplasticity, for example, which I referenced earlier, it's not controversial. It's just standard brain scan technology that we've possessed for 50 years. But the implications of that data suggest to us that thought is not, cannot be seen strictly as an epiphenomenon of the brain, because thought, which is, I'm leaving undefined, uh, because there is no consensus definition, really, of what it is. I mean, I'm sure you could find a TED Talk that would insist otherwise, but the fact is, uh, uh, TED Talks kind of cleave to this line that uh, everything that, 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 that we've discovered, uh, again, is sort of a box that is, is set within its parameters, and we can look what's inside the box, but if implications take us outside the box, well, then, you know, you have to go on legalized freedom or something. You know, you're, you've, you've left the domain of, <laughs> of, of washed, you know, prettied up perfumed, uh, uh, discussion. And yet that domain is where we have to go. And it is where we're going. You know, I, I think in my book, Daydream Believer, I am describing aspects of quantum physics and the manner in which matter, as we understand it, has a perceptual basis and I reference some articles, quite recent articles in Scientific American, and I tell the reader with total ingenuousness, look, if you think I'm getting far out here, I'm being conservative. I'm being downright conservative, including in everything that I've I've said in our exchange thus far. Go to the articles in a mainstream publication like Scientific American that deal with the quantum measurement problem, and they're 
more adventurous than than most of the things that I'm saying. Uh, this field has presented us with a uh, interdimensional, um, non-linear, uh, non-orderly uh, uh, perceptual basis of reality. And even those physicists who just won the Nobel Prize in Literature for I'm sorry, the Nobel Prize in Physics for an adaptation of Bell's theorem. They're dealing with refined ways of measuring how objects from the particle scale up through the cosmic scale affect and mirror one another uh, at great distances. This is roughly speaking what Einstein referred to somewhat ruefully as uh, spooky action at a distance. And we've gotten really good at measuring these things. But the more we learn, the less we know, because we don't have a theory of causation. And, and we don't know why there are extra physical correspondences between objects when there shouldn't be any, according to our standard definitions of gravity, time, space. And we as a human community are starting to come to terms with that. We're starting to grapple with that. Uh, it's going to take uh, uh, about another 20 years until that reaches Wikipedia, but we're, we're there. We're there. And so it's it's really quite a fascinating time to be alive in, in that sense. Ours is the first generation that's really facing these implications. And the Western scientific model requires causes. It requires a, a theory that explains causes. So you have the growth of things like uh, string theory or theories of cosmic wormholes and, and, and things of that nature, all of which are just conceptions of reality. But those are the steps that we're taking to try to account for what up until very recently was considered the unaccountable. You mentioned these um sort of discoveries, these things that are being revealed and this sort of convergence of ideas, information, theories pointing somewhere. Uh, there's a quote from from your book, one of the pieces. Um, you, these are uncontroversial in themselves, but seismic in implications. And I think, as you say, that's the, that's the nub of it, isn't it, really? Sort of the implications, what that might mean. And the reason that we're going through these concepts and talking about these ideas is because of what I mentioned earlier, because pay attention, people, this is important. It isn't just matter that matters. It's non-matter also matters. And that there's potential here to, to not only improve your own well-being and your own journey, you know, through whatever this life is, but again, at also all the institutions, you know, all the societal institutions, government, business, finance, you name it, every dimension of the materialist um, human existence has problems currently. And there's potential here for growth and change with a new way of seeing ourselves, seeing each other and seeing, uh, you know, the, the cosmos in general. So this is, a, this is a, we're doing this for a reason. <laughs> and, you know, and I sense uh, in your writings about uh, the causative power of our, of our thoughts, you know, our intentions and how our emotions, how they affect um, how we experience life, that you have the same wish for other people to, to benefit because, we, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships, as they say, you know. And I changed a couple of years ago. I even changed the the spoken introduction I have to the show after reading The Miracle Club and uh, the sexy voiced lady who does the introduction. I got her to read. <laughs> I, I, got, I, I got her to redo it. And part of it says change your thinking, change your life. 
you know? And I remember when I was a child, um, my father wasn't on the scene, but my grandfather basically took his place. And I'd come out with some something maybe negative. I wasn't an overly negative child, but I'd come out with something about, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. This is going to happen. This, is got, this has happened. And he would say, you only think that. And I always That's stuck. That's wonderful. Wow. Yeah, it always stuck with me, you know. It's fascinating. I, I, I think that I try to kind of bring the rubber to the road in some of these essays as well. I want these ideas to be of practical use to people in their personal experiments. One idea that I've been fascinated with recently is the question of retrocausality. There was a professor at Cornell who I write about extensively in Daydream Believer, Daryl Bem, who uh, did a, a, a 10-year a series of experiments in precognition, which he wrote about and published in a mainstream psychological journal in 2011. And it's helpful to now have more than a decade to look back on his research because it's been, it's proved confirmatory in a very large meta-analysis uh, that was updated as recently as July of 2020. So we have some perspective on the validity of his experiments. And he found that cognition could be improved by future actions, basically, thereby challenging the linear model of reality, which we already know is just conceptual. It's just illusory. We've known that since the days of Einstein. There are exceptions to linearity under certain conditions. And Bem attempted to apply this in matters of cognition. And I was contacted several weeks ago um, by a a Thai kickboxer who was preparing for a championship match in Texas. And he wanted to know if I had any exercises that might help him with his mental game as he approached the match. And I recommended an exercise that I call the 30-day mental challenge, which I write about in various books. And I actually have a short book specifically on that coming out early in 2023. And he said, well, I'm definitely going to do it, but my match is is only nine days away. So do you have something that can help me in the more short term? And I said, actually, the experiment that I want you to try is do this 30-day mental challenge based on the BEM research suggesting that future activities, so-called, can improve cognition and performance in what we call the present. Uh, if you keep doing the exercise, at least according to the applications of BEM's research, it's a reasonable hypothesis that the continuation of the exercise, again, in the so-called future, could help you in the present. And he did so. He was thrilled with the results. Uh, he did win the match, I must add. Um, I can't take credit for that, but I think it's something that just bears noting. And um, I posted a video of it up on Twitter. People can take a look at it for themselves. And it's um it's 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 in league with the kinds of experiments that I encourage people to embark on. Using these things on an individual scale is philosophically, uh, ethically revealing to people. Uh, it can be revealing in terms of performance, and I I really want to encourage people's individual private experiments. Okay, just before we. I move on picking up what you've just said. There's just a couple of things I wanted to throw out because I don't really have a home for them um, in my future projection of what I'm going to be saying. I've been reading um, not a lot of detail, but usually just online articles, but getting the, the feeling that quantum effects have been showing up 
in increasingly large objects. Now we're talking not talking about a basketball here, you know, or a chair, but in, in quantum terms, um, in, in objects that are significantly larger than those displaying a quantum effects previously than that. And it's fascinating to me that that might why that might be happening, how it might be happening, and whether it represents some kind of development, you know, developing trend. If that, if that were to continue, you know, the implications for the nature of reality would be, well, mind-boggling, really. Yes. Uh, well, we see it, for example, with hydrogen molecules. There's a wonderful BBC video on YouTube that shows hydrogen passing through liquid hydrogen, passing through glass, and you watch it, and it it it, it, it it's very difficult to to take it in but there it is there's a, a liquid passing through a solid uh under the the right conditions of temperature and it's basically a quantum effect and it's something that we can see witness experience it's not on the particle scale that makes it so difficult sometimes to relate uh, to some of the findings of of quantum mechanics but uh, there it is and w- we're seeing something that's not commonly understood or wasn't commonly understood to be possible a hundred years ago. And these are the kinds of things that are entering our consciousness now. How that's going to affect our consciousness is very much an open question, but that it will have an effect is as certain as uh, I presume the fact that Darwinism or the theories of Darwin uh, had an effect in the Victorian era. It gives us a, a different sense of human nature, human possibility, who and what we are. Well, th- what you just said there in response to my comment actually does link to my other question, which was uh, in terms of the UFO phenomenon or phenomena you know, around UFOs, are you aware of Mike Clellan's work? He's a, a fellow American. Um, I'm not, no. Well, his book, The Messengers, um, I really strongly recommend to anyone interested in the UFO phenomenon. How it connects to your, your comments is that he believes that um, he basically he's, he explores a lot of theories about the origins of, of these phenomena that are basically not hard physical craft with little green men in them. It's everything else. And he, he notes lots of common traits and people that have these experiences and see these things. He talks about interdimensionality and his book is called The Messengers because he feels that we're being shown something mm-hmm. about the nature of reality, that these things are happening to people because quite often they happen at pivotal times in people's lives, uh, times of crisis, times of stress. I, for my part, have never had any sort of experience whatsoever that I could class as supernatural or paranormal or seen any weird lights in the sky. But he feels the messengers, we're, there's a message here for us telling us something. And I speculated in my mind, I said, I wonder if quantum effects showing up in larger objects is is trying to tell us something yeah it's interesting well we're, the the ufo debate is 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 going like a freight train uh the mainstreaming of the ufo thesis is 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 so far out of the box that it, it's now become a common discussion and I would venture that there's no serious person in our culture today who would just deny it, wave it off and say, oh, you know, swamp gas, imagination, little green men, what have you. There's no question that there's some sort of engineered phenomena that's being witnessed. 
And, and, and what we face is what it is. Uh, obviously, the rejectionists would say, well, look, you know, it's, it's misidentification or maybe it's some sort of unknown drone technology or something. But I find that very insufficient because as I think you were uh, alluding in, in some of uh, the author's work, we also have historical records that show movement patterns that predate uh, drone technology or anything that might be used as a, a educated guess as to what kind of uh, earthly uh, engineered technology this might be, especially if you have some of the flight patterns going back uh, in military records and, and civilian records by many decades. So we really have no way uh, to put this question back in the box. And as I was alluding earlier, it seems to me that we as a human community have better, more finely worked through theories of interdimensionality. I'm thinking specifically of string theory, uh, than we do of, uh, uh, extraterrestrialism and, and accounting for how these things, uh, if, if, if they are from some other sphere, of existence or understanding would span such vast distances. Of course, we have theories there too, like cosmic wormholes, where you introduce some kind of exotic matter uh, and create a black hole, and 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 thereby uh, allowing an object to pass through ordinary barriers of time space. But again, all just conceptions of reality, probably less finely worked out at this point uh, than interdimensionality. So. The question of intention is one that we have to ask. Why are these things seen? Why are these things observed? What is it on the part of the witnesses? What are the conditions under which these things appear? Just as ESP researchers began asking uh, decades ago, what are the conditions under which statistically tracked uh, episodes of ESP or telepathy uh, seem to appear? And these are enormously tantalizing questions that we're facing almost like we're crouched on our knees staring through a keyhole and we can see so very, very little. But questions of intention, cause, correlation between object and individual, these are just enormous questions, which is one of the reasons why I'm eager to see more funding dedicated to academic ESP research, a field that has been woefully underfunded for many, many decades. And it's a very inexpensive field. I mean, the money that it takes to do some of these experiments is relative peanuts compared to what we spend in the psychological and the hard sciences every year. And I feel that it's it's possible there could be a convergence between that field and, and UFO studies and and studies of interdimensionality because we're looking for the conditions under which extra physical phenomena are produced are replicable and i think that's one of the most exciting human inquiries that exists right now well i mean consider the money that's spent at cern for example uh i've had bernardo bernardo castro on as a guest many times his theories theory of reality is is kind of one of the most parsimonious i've come across essentially it's um idealism you know the, the idea that yes. um, that you know consciousness is fundamental yes. and um in his uh, in his book the idea of the world he forensically lays out daring anybody with a scientific background to to pick holes in it his theory of reality but my yes point and he's wonderful and he um, i'm glad you've had him on that several times. He's writing for mainstream journals. He's writing for Scientific American. And he and a, a group of collaborators recently wrote a very 
challenging piece in Scientific American that argued the case that not only is there an observer effect easily trackable and at work in quantum mechanics, but it doesn't matter whether the observer is a sentient being or a mechanized device. There's still intention behind it. He argued for it very elegantly. It's it's a piece I highly recommend. I reference it in Daydream Believer. But forgive me because I, I cut you off. No, no, not at all. You, you really didn't spine this as a conversation after all. Uh, I mentioned CERN simply, you know, the, the mammoth amounts of money being spent there probing essentially what is... Uh, the nature of reality. I've referred to CERN as like you know the the world's biggest cathedral, in uh-huh. a way because it's, you know they're yes. you know, they're, they're engaged in this sort of metaphysical quest, aren't they? Really, and it's a great way of putting it, actually. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but compare the costs of CERN as a project with, for example, uh, Dean Radin, another chap who I've had on um, as a guest with 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 ESP labs, you know, the ESP research and how inexpensive that is. And I, I think if we were putting, kind of, ironically, if we we're putting time into that research, I think we'd probably be making more advances, you know, more resources into that. We'd be making more advances in, in a quest to probe deeper and deeper into the nature of reality than maybe even the, the guys at, and, and girls at CERN have, have managed. Oh, yeah, I agree. In fact, I, I would estimate that we've lost at least a generation of progress in ESP research here in the Western world due to uh, funding droughts and the, the the there's a polemical skeptics apparatus that has been very successful in the media uh in the reference media on wikipedia at disabling the legitimacy of esp studies and it's to the intellectual impoverishment of us all I, i'm not sure i understand what drives them you you'd, you'd need somebody to discuss the emotional dimensions of human nature, which I don't really understand very well. And uh, 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 and yet this professional skeptics apparatus, which has been in high gear since the early 1970s, has been very successful in curtailing funding. So as, as, as inexpensive as these experiments are, they're shunned on most college campuses. Uh, sometimes uh, some work is able to squeak through, but a lot of these researchers have to do their fundraising privately. And anybody who's written a grant proposal knows that writing a grant proposal is a career in and of itself. And they have to shoulder that burden at the same time as doing their research, balancing their day jobs in academia or uh, in a lab. And the, 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 the burdens are staggering. So it's amazing that we've had the findings uh, that have come down to us, including the BEM precognition experiments, the field has soldiered on in a really remarkable way, but it's been stymied. It's been stymied to be sure. And, um, uh, uh, who knows what we would have learned if, if, if funding had just been a little bit looser. We'll make up the lost ground, but I estimate we've lost at least a generation of progress. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com legalizefreedom.com